This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 457 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Mike Taylor and Alex Rudehouse. Now, Mike and Alex were riverines in the Navy. That was a unit that was made famous in Vietnam, patrolling the rivers in that country, and then saw a resurgence in Iraq in the conflict at the beginning of this millennium. And that innovation and entrepreneurship that it took to stand the riverines back up, they carried out when they transitioned from the military into their company, Beaver Fit USA. Now, BeaverFit was founded by Tom Beaver, a SAS reservist from the UK who began making his own fitness equipment. Now, what you're going to hear from this conversation is BeaverFit has solutions for so many of the issues, genuine issues that we face when it comes to putting strength and conditioning equipment and facilities in the first responder space. So I am extremely passionate about this company. It's another one that I'm hoping I'm going to be aligned with on the show. And as you know, I seek companies like this to bring to you. But having equipment that's trusted by the military, that's able to be outside, that can create space outside of a building like a fire station or a police station, I think is invaluable in getting our men and women in uniforms as fit as possible for the profession that we do. So before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. 
So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Mike Taylor and Alex Rudhouse. Enjoy. Well, Mike and Alex, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. I think you're you're in two different locations, so we're doing a three-way conversation today, but uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. Yeah, James, this is awesome. Thank you for allowing us to join. Beautiful. So I will kind of like point to one or the other so we don't kind of overlap each other. So we'll start with you, Mike. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm actually down uh, in Reno, Nevada uh, at the BeRefit North America headquarters. We actually have two offices down here. I'm at our sales and marketing office, which is uh, you know just on the western side of the city and about five miles down the road. Uh, we have another uh, office where our warehouse is, but uh, I'm sitting in our office kind of looking out the window at the beautiful Sierra Nevada mountains. Beautiful. And Alex, what about yourself? Yeah, I'm just up the hill from Mike. So I work from home a few days a week and uh, just up the hill in Lake Tahoe, which is about 40 minutes from northern Nevada or from northern Reno where our headquarters is. Brilliant. All right. Well, I like to do the chronological walkthrough. I know it's interesting because both of your stories kind of parallel quite a lot. Um, But let's start at the very beginning. So Mike, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, I dig it. I dig it. Uh, I'm from Syracuse, New York. So I'm an upstater uh, from Syracuse, New York. And uh, I like to tell folks I grew up in a locker room. Uh, you know, I played every sport under the sun. Um, it was always outside playing, you know, basketball, soccer, baseball, football, whatever, whatever it was. Um, that's what I grew up doing. Um, you know, my mom was a nurse, but my dad has a construction company. Um, and I have a sister. She was really into athletics as well. Um, you know, I kind of I gravitated more towards soccer and baseball um, in upstate New York, but just, you know, lived a, you know, pretty uh, kind of simple childhood, always outside and you know, looking to get after it. Beautiful. All right. And then um, when you were at school, were you always dreaming of the military or was there some other profession in mind back then? <sighs> you know, I, I can't say I was necessarily always dreaming of the military. I, I had some um, cousins that I grew up with. So I had, uh, my dad's brother lived down the road. We all went to the same high school and uh, some of my older cousins, um, ended up going to the, the military academies. My, my oldest cousin, Brian, he went to the Naval Academy. Uh, the one after him went to West Point and, and we kind of grew up playing sports together. So uh, that's what opened my eyes to, um, the military service was then. Um, and my granddad was in the Navy, but you know, I was academies through my older cousins and you ended up uh, getting recruited to play soccer at the Naval Academy. So and that was more my entrance through some uh, family connections and then uh, really through soccer uh, when they started recruiting me and, and I got excited about going down to Annapolis and playing soccer there. Beautiful. Now, just as a side tangent, I always ask people this with, with um, soccer being their main sport. An observation that I made when I moved from the UK to here was back home, you have football, you know, soccer, um, it doesn't stop when people graduate school or graduate college. You know, a lot of them play local leagues and well into their 40s and 50s. Um, when I moved to the States, it seemed like there was a lot of, a lot of people that got to an incredibly high level that, um, high school or college level, then had injuries and then went from zero, from like a hundred to zero and then became almost 
not no pun intended, but almost like a kind of Uncle Rico thing where you're just talking about the good old days when you were a high level athlete instead of continuing to to exercise. What is your observation now, especially with that sport, with that kind of bridging the gap between high school collegiate athletics and then trying to to continue that road of health and fitness post educational years? Yeah, uh, so I think it's a great question, James, and you know this kind of leads into some of the military stuff. But um, you know, I was very lucky that you know played soccer in the Naval Academy and then I graduated, went into the Navy, and the Navy you know continues that. And the military, you know, obviously continued to train to do my job. But uh, on the, the ship I was on, at the Riverine Unit, when I was deployed to Africa, um, I always played soccer. Uh, and we had a team on our ship and when we would go to different port visits, you know, you know how it is that the Americans come to port and uh, yeah, they, they want to challenge them in something. And I played in multiple tournaments uh, across the globe, really, whether it was in Portsmouth, England, we played a bunch of folks and split Croatia. Uh, when I was deployed to Africa, uh, I would play pickup soccer uh, with the Ugandan gate guards. And I would just walk up, give the inter- international sign that I would like to join the game. And we started knocking the ball around. So um, I think soccer being a global sport and especially being associated with the Navy um, was just amazing. The experiences that I was able to have and, even played the Djibouti national team when I was in Djibouti and we had this game at night in their stadium in the city center, um, just incredible experiences. And I would say now um, I'm probably more into it with my kids, you know, just knocking the ball around with them in the backyard, coaching them. And then uh, I did get involved in a, a little pickup soccer league and the futsal league uh, in the wintertime playing. So um, I do think soccer is a unique game that you don't need much equipment uh, to play. You have a ball, you start knocking it around, um, so it, it's definitely served me well and, and helped me make connections, you know, really no matter where I am. Beautiful. It's just very cool to hear a story like that. Obviously, the um, the truce in World War One is a, a prime example of that. But also I had a Australian SAS guy, Harry Moffat, on very recently, and he took a cricket bat on all his deployments. And then he had 11 bats in the end. They were signed by all kinds of, you know, everything from fellow soldiers to warlords and everyone in between. Um, but again, that game unified people too. So I think it's amazing. 100%. Yeah. I mean, even when, you know, Alex and I were deployed to Iraq together, we were in different places, but my nieces and nephew back home did a, a soccer ball drive and they sent me soccer balls and we would hand them out to the local kids in Iraq when we were deployed there. So um, plenty of stories around how, you know, athletics and sports you know, really brings, um, you know, global communities together. Beautiful. All right. Well, then all the way back with you, Alex. So tell me about where you were born and again, your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's definitely going way back. But uh, so unlike Mike, who's from upstate New York, I'm more a child of the West Coast. So I grew up uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, up in Marin County, north of the Bay, back when that was still more of a hippie enclave and, and less of an extension of the marina as it is today. Um, and up at Lake Tahoe. So where I live today, this was my childhood stomping grounds. And then I actually went to high school in Oregon. So sort of all over the West Coast, California, Nevada, Oregon. And I did play a lot of sports, similar to Mike, um, all your sort of usual football, baseball, track and field, your American sports. But I would define my childhood more as really growing up with my head in a book versus being in a locker room, right? Like a lot of my childhood was spent reading um, and sort of that life of the mind. And then uh, we'd have to pull myself out of a book to go onto the field and and compete. Beautiful. And then um, did you have any military in your family? Yeah, absolutely. So my dad actually served in the military, as did my grandpa. So I'm third generation service. And uh, it was one of those things that if you'd asked me throughout my childhood, if I was going to join the military, I would have said, no, that's probably not for me. 
Um, but as you get older, right, and, uh, you know, get more to that less of childhood, more adolescence and approaching manhood, um, it, it was just something that seemed like a big adventure, right? Like my dad had served and it was the possibility of getting to put the uniform on and go do cool things around the world. And it also paid for college, which was a big part of it. Uh, it was not something I was going to overlook. And so, yeah, as I approached, you know, that 18 year old age, I was like, you know what, this is something I do want to do as well. Beautiful. Now, I know that you both found yourself in a very unique organization once you entered the Navy. So, I, I'll you know put the mic for either of you to, to start. But tell me about the history of the Riverines, you know, why that ended up being disbanded for a while, and then the kind of time period that you found yourselves entering in that specific division. Yeah, that's a great question. So, I'll, I'll jump in on that. So, really, if, if you think about Riverines, another phrase for that is the, the brown water Navy, right? So, the folks that are in the rivers, uh, as opposed to being out in the ocean or the littorals close to shore. And uh, where it really rose to prominence was Vietnam. So, if you were to Google or look up anything about the Vietnam War or the brown water Navy, um, that's where, and it was, it was a large force. There was a lot of folks serving uh, in that, and they focused on, on the Delta and all of the various waterways of Vietnam. Um, after that, and I don't have the exact dates right, but eventually after that conflict, uh, the Navy essentially discontinued that capability. And so they just got rid of it. There wasn't the funding or the focus or the mindset or the need. Um, and so it ended up the, the sort of river warfare capability went in two directions. Uh, one, it went towards SOCOM. And so that's where you had the SWIT community. And the SWIT community, obviously, again, just plenty of people can research what they do, but they primarily uh, are a complementary element to the SEALs, and they really focus on you know more covert insertion, extraction, uh, those types of missions uh, versus an overt like infantry-style ground combat unit. Um, the other direction it went is more in that direction. It went to the Marine Corps. And so the Marine Corps established a group called the Small Craft Company that was much more Marine Corps-esque. If you've ever spent time with Marines, uh, being infantrymen is very much in their DNA. And so, and, and the concept of doing something covertly probably doesn't happen very often when you got a Marine kitted up ready to enter uh, anywhere. So, um, so those were the two sort of divergent paths that river warfare went. Um, bring it all the way to what we did at Riverine is in 2006, uh, Big Navy really decided they needed to be more relevant in the fight in Iraq, which was the main focus at the time. If you go back, Afghanistan was certainly happening, uh, but was actually sort of quiet uh, up until around the 2010 period. And so there was a lot of focus on uh, Iraq and then a huge focus, if you remember, on the Sunni Triangle, the Triangle of Death, Ambar Province. And of course, what defines that is the Euphrates River runs right through it. And then, of course, the Tigris River comes right down on the other side of Baghdad. Um, and so that was incredibly relevant to the conflict, incredibly relevant to the geography and the need to control those riverways. Um, and initially, the Marines took that mission with small craft company. And that's where the Navy sort of raised their hand and said, hey, wait a minute, this is a waterway that we're the Navy, we should be involved in this. And so uh, 2006 is when they stood that unit up just from scratch. There was no river capability. And uh, when we stood it up, they actually reached back to some of the old um, folks from Vietnam, the game wardens. And so they actually brought a lot of these guys in and they worked with a lot of our technical experts, uh, even just, you know, concepts as nuanced as, hey, if you're driving a gunboat up a river, how can you tell if maybe there's an obstruction or an obstacle in the river? How do you look at the eddy and the flow of how the water's moving to understand what might be beneath it? Stuff that you can only learn in the field. And then those lessons are lost, right, over time. And so we really had to build back up all of that subject matter knowledge uh, internally. And not just that but do it in the face of a relatively fast stand-up timeline because the Navy wanted us to get into the fight as soon as possible. And so that story is actually a fairly unique one in that they took people from all over the fleet, volunteers, non-volunteers, and 
brought them together and then put us through an intensive ground combat training pipeline, uh, as well as a river warfare training pipeline. Same time we're bringing in the equipment, trying to figure out how to use all that stuff. And then at the very end of our final field exercise, it was great. Get on an airplane, you're going to Ramadi. Uh, and, and you're going to see if what you learned, how well you learned it. Um, so that's a quick overview. I don't know if I missed anything, Mike, feel free to fill in. Uh, I think the, the history background is awesome. And what was truly unique about it is typically when you go to a Navy unit, um, there's established equipment, equipment and maintenance plans and standard operating procedures. Uh, when we showed up there, Alex and I were you know, one of the first handful of officers that showed up. Uh, we were junior lieutenants at the time, so we were pretty young officers, and we had a ton of responsibility um, to not only uh, train you know, our team and get them ready to, to get over there and accomplish the mission, but to equip them, uh, come up with maintenance plans. Uh, it was very much like a, a startup atmosphere at the unit because uh, there wasn't a lot of those uh, procedures in place already, and the equipment wasn't established. So uh, it, it was just a great learning experience for the entire team there uh, at the Riverine units when we first set them up. So one thing that I talk about quite a bit on here is is the the best military, but obviously also first responders of police and, and fire agencies are the ones, in my opinion, that are always training for the what if scenario. Hasn't happened yet, but it could happen, you know, and they're kind of, they're trying to reverse engineer some really horrific events and, and what would that look like in the training ground? It seems like there would be a large element of that in standing up the riverines again, especially as the battleground now wasn't the jungles of Vietnam, but was uh, the Middle East. So what was the philosophy, whether it was humility, whether it was, you know, adapting lessons from the Vietnam vets, what was the kind of mindset to allow all the kind of what if scenarios of this new um, you know battleground that you were going to be on that that's a really good question and I think one phrase that helps answer it is is putting tools in your toolkit right that was something we heard a lot during our training pipeline and what we did sort of the, the way the training pipeline went actually helped a lot with that sort of what if planning is initially it was intensive uh, with Marine Corps ground combat training so all of us went through the School of Infantry. Um, in the Marine Corps, which is the grunt in, enlisted infantry school. So despite one being Navy guys and two, a handful of us being officers, uh, we all had the, the pleasure of spending a summer at Camp Lejeune, uh, getting our butts kicked, going through SOI. And what that really built in, like really ingrained in us was uh, how Marines shoot and move on the ground, right? What, like what their ground combat movement is, how they communicate. But then what we did was after that, as we went and spent almost the same amount of time, about a 12-week training pipeline at Blackwater, uh, which was, you know, back in the heyday of Blackwater when airstrip, you know, f trees were being leveled and airstrips were being put in and you'd go onto their compound in Moyoc and it was just, God, I'm, I'm on a, a warlord's camp. Like what's going on here? It was an incredible training place. And that pipeline uh, was really focused on more of uh, Naval Special Warfare ground combat tactics and techniques. And so we really got to uh, learn from each of those communities in different ways that they even structure a fire team and move on the ground. And when they take contact, what do they do? What are their initial reactions? And so there, just even in that, you use the word humility. There was a huge amount of humility because one, we all knew how green we were, right? We'd all just been pulled from the fleet and were asked to step into these two communities that were, you know, lots of time of experience in ground combat and then try to learn from both of them and then try to apply it to what we were doing. Uh, and that came out in a lot of different ways. We had a field X to try to basically say, hey, these guys are certified for deployment. And it was being graded by the Marines. And Mike and I actually got called in at one point before, I don't remember exactly who was in the room. I, I don't think the CG who was overseeing it was in it, but it was a couple of the senior Marine officers. 
And they were going to, they wanted to fail us because they'd been looking at how our teams were moving on the ground and how we were communicating. And it wasn't straight out of Marine Corps doctrine. And so literally, even as part of these field exercises, we were evolving the doctrine as we went, because then we sat down and explained, here was our thought process. Here's why we moved the teams this way. Here's why we're communicating. Here's why that guy stayed in Overwatch. And it, it, it was, you know, a light bulb moment for some of these Marines, like, hey, this isn't just, you know, typical ground combat. This is very different because it's on a riverway. So that was a big part of it was just having to uh, define how we were going to operate in this very unique environment with a lot of the different skills that these different folks had given us that we sort of filed away in the toolkit, right? And you would bring those tools out at different times. Um, one other example that I want to share that I think is very relevant to this, this is more of an in-country example, but we basically had to write all of our SOPs and TTPs from scratch, right? So your standard operating procedures and your... Uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, they didn't exist. And one example is, as we went in and all the training we were getting on the ID threat, uh, as it pertained to the riverways, was that it was going to be more uh, riverbank IDs that would essentially throw shrapnel at you. And that that was the biggest threat, is that you were going to get hit by ball bearings and shrapnel and other things like that. Um, but because you were on the waterway, it was very difficult, of course, for the IED to do the typical catastrophic kill, which is to get underneath the vehicle and then you know explode up into it. Well, one of our first missions down the Nazare Canal in Ramadi, um, we came across a waterborne IED. It was a homemade, it was a propane tank that had been the top cut off and a bunch of just homemade uh, HE high explosives put in there. And then it was basically sunk on a fishing line that was run across the river, which those lines across the river, super common, right? It's how uh, fishermen would pull boats across. And so you couldn't just, you know, go cut every line on the river because the other big part of what we were doing was winning hearts and minds. And if you're out there screwing with fishermen's way of life, that dude's going to turn around and talk to the insurgents. And now you've got a problem where you don't need one. So very fine line to walk. So we came across a waterborne IED. Uh, it was going to be command detonated. So there was actually a guy waiting in a house with a trigger um, to blow it. And fortunately, we had air cover that day. Uh, Apaches were running low down the river and they scared the trigger guy off. And so we found all of this with an EOD tech and we ended up having to map it out, all the copper wire, the battery, where all the triggers were, and then essentially help. I mean, he did all the diffusing. We just carried all the, the ordinance over to the place where he wanted to blow it up. Um, but basically from that experience, it was, we got back to our tents at the end of that mission. And I sat down with the other officer in my detachment and we said, hey, we now need a waterborne IED SOP. And so we just sat down and said, okay, what if that had detonated on the first boat? What if that had detonated on the second boat? What were our actions going to be? How are we going to secure the area, get people out of the water, all that type of stuff. And so that, it was a very, I mean, we were, we were on the cusp of what these riverine tactics were going to be. And literally, and I hate to use this phrase, but it's true. We were just making it up as we went along, right? Like you'd see that, build an SOP. And then the next time, here's your SOP. So then when the second riverine squadron um, relieved us in country, we just handed all that stuff over and said, here, guys, here's here's our best lessons learned. You know, try to incorporate this in and train to it. Anything to add to that, Mike? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about the unit was um, that everyone was incredibly focused because we, we knew what the mission was. There was a date on the calendar. We knew when we were going to deploy. Um, so it, the entire team at, at the Riverine Squadron was focused on that date and everyone was bought in. But on top of that, we had an incredible amount of resources. So between the intense focus of the team and everyone behind a single mission and the resources, we got the best training out there. Uh, not only the best training, a lot of it. We had more rounds uh, and more time on the range than, than any unit like imaginable. Um, and, and the training that Alex uh, talked about 
got was from the best folks that have done this before. So um, they really ingrained um, the discipline in us to conduct rehearsals. And like Alex said, uh, have after action debriefs after every single mission, because we knew our SOPs were so new um, that we had to go back and always change them. And I just feel like that's different. There's a lot of units, um, uh, whether it be first responders in the military that are kind of ingrained in the way they always did things. Um, and we weren't ingrained in that because um, there, there wasn't really SOPs and changing something was easy because we're the ones that came up with it and we were open-minded that uh, we just always want to improve and get better. So that combination of being open-minded, having an intense focus on a single mission, um, and the, the big one is, is the time and resources that um, the Navy provided us to, to go all in uh, and make sure that we were ready for uh, the mission that came upon us. Beautiful. I mean, there's a lot of you know, obviously parallels with the first responder professions and the one common denominator is the good equipment, the time to train, you know, all those things that sadly we don't see in a lot of the responder professions and it's so backwards. Um, well, Alex, you, you touched on, you know, the, the rivering story. One thing I like to talk about, and then we'll talk about transitioning out and kind of the, the strength and conditioning journey. But I think it's very important to get the perspective of every veteran that's seen combat on here. As a citizen, even though as a responder, never in the military, we get a very polarizing story via our social media, media, everything on war. Very pro, kill them all, let God sort them out. Very anti, bunch of baby killers. Not much normality in between. So what I like to, to kind of pull out are the through your own eyes, boots on the ground stories of what you saw. So regardless of why our men and women were sent there, when you got there, were there any moments where any things that you saw where you realized, okay, at this time and place, there are some bad people. And I, and I reiterate this. Usually it's the, the, the citizens of that country that are being, you know, the, the victims of a lot of this atrocity. Um, were there any aha moments for you where you realized, okay, there are some horrible people that we've got to get rid of regardless of the politics that put us here originally? Yeah, that's a really good question. And look, in the buildup to going overseas and being an 18 and 19 year old with the uniform on, there's always that very testosterone driven, hey, let's kill them all and let God sort them out, right? I mean, and that's, that is universal probably in the lead up to any given conflict in the history of time, right? Um, I think some of the, the aha moments or, or the things that have honestly stuck with me since the very first time, I remember when we landed in Al-Assad, right? So we came in from Kuwait, uh, they flew us into Al-Assad. It was a few days there while they're getting logistics together for us to um, hop on some helicopters to get down to Ramadi. And it was the awareness, just in one of the transient personnel tents that we were sleeping in, the awareness that there was an organized group of people that were just outside that wire, that when we went outside, it were proactively looking for ways to harm us. And that was, if you think about that, you think, well, yeah, of course, but that doesn't exist at any other time in your life. And so knowing that another intelligent entity, a person in this organization was going to try to find ways to hurt me and my men was this, it was this, just this like sobering realization of, Hey, this is it. Like th this is not a sports game. This is not, and this is not an evaluation exercise. Like the stakes are what the stakes are and, and you need to be prepared for that. So that was one moment of that. The, the flip side, you asked, Hey, do you ever see really any horrible evil things? I want to answer a different way of that is what I really take away now. And what I think a lot about now it is the people of Iraq, not the horrible, evil things that, that were perpetrated upon them, um, but just understanding the degree to which, hey, it's so easy to demonize the enemy. 
And yet when you get over there and when we would be going into houses or villages or clearing rooms and, and looking for insurgents or just trying to gain intel and you just slow down and look at these other people, they're just people. They're just trying to make their way through life. And you're a foreign soldier in their land. And boy, are you foreign. I mean, you're looking at shepherds with flocks and mud huts along the sides of rivers and a lifestyle from an infrastructure standpoint that hasn't changed in a thousand years. And here we are, kitted up. We must look like aliens from outer space, helmets, goggles, face masks. I mean, we are just covered in gear. We're out in 120 degree heat, but still operating when they're hiding in the shade, wondering what, what is wrong with these Americans. It's, it, it was really, again, eye-opening to see it from their perspective and realize that, hey, we're the foreigners here and that most of the people in this country are not our enemy. Um, and that was something that really had to be internalized and was a message I talked to my guys a lot about is you cannot demonize the people that we're coming across. Uh, we need to keep in mind, like, hey, we're, we're genuinely here trying to help them. And frankly, they would rather have us not be here. So that's a very humanizing part of it. In terms of some of the evil, look, there's a lot of very ugly things that happen in war. Um, I remember there was a Iraqi police station that got blown up very close to us when we were coming back from a patrol and the ram like just the physical ramifications of what that even does to the you know just uh, confronting the reality of that visually right is is a very difficult thing and seeing what other what people can do to other people and forgetting their humanity is a very difficult thing so um it's i guess my biggest takeaway from that was that when we make the decision to go into a conflict and again not no politics involved here at all but the people making that decision, and frankly, the young soldiers and Marines and airmen and all those folks who are going to be on the front end of that, if they haven't done it yet, is people need to be very aware of the enormity of what that decision is. And going into combat is not romantic and it's not rah-rah and it's, it's not something that the movies portray it to be. Uh, it is a harsh human reality and it's something that should be avoided at all costs. Um, so that's, again, I don't know how much that answers your question, but some of the, the moments that, that stuck with me from that experience. No, it, it answers it very well. And it's funny because I always ask the the human side as well would be my second part of that question. So, Mike, same thing for you through your eyes. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. I actually had the opportunity to you know deploy to Iraq in 2007 and then almost 10 years later uh, had a deployment to East Africa uh, in Djibouti, uh, Somali type area. So, um, in similar experiences, both times, I think number one, uh, stepping back and, and realizing that the, uh, the, the, the countryside in the environment is just gorgeous. Like the riparian environment and along the Euphrates river and all the history was, that was there was interesting to, to realize, um, you know, how, how actually like it, we always, uh, you know, kind of don't really pay attention to the, the history behind these areas that we're going into um, and the environments and, and the culture and stuff like that. So I, I think that was interesting. Um, the other thing is for the human side of it, a lot of these folks, whether it's, you know, ISIS, Al-Qaeda in Iraq or Al-Shabaab, whatever these organizations are, and I think Alex and I are both very much apolitical, but what was interesting to me is, yes, there's a lot of bad actors but there's also a lot of folks that are just looking for a way to provide for their family and safety and security for their family. And that they end up in these organizations the same way that folks uh, in the States or in Mexico uh, or wherever in the world end up in gangs or cartels. It's really not that much different. And I think that was an interesting realization that hey, this is just a way of life. They're just trying to provide safety and security for their family. Uh, and this is a good, this is an option. 
Um, so I always felt when we were there, what are we doing outside of um, the military conflict to create um, other paths for the young kids that are coming up? Uh, education, um, helping them establish businesses uh, and build industry so that when this next generation comes up in these countries that we've been deployed to, um, there's an, a multitude of options for a way of life to provide for their families instead of uh, joining one of the insurgent organizations. Beautiful. Well, well, again, thank you for your perspective, because we don't get to hear these, like you said, apolitical. Politics shouldn't come into it. These are, you know, we're sending young men and women in to mitigate a situation. Hopefully there's a you know, good reason behind it. But at the end of the day, you're there inserted as the foreigner, you know, and I think the hearts and minds philosophy is good if it's applied properly. And I like to reverse engineer a lot of these, not that I have the solution, but to look back. And, you know, when we hear about the opium fields in Afghanistan and, you know, the history of drug prohibition, then maybe, you know, reverse engineer that. If we stop empowering, you know, the 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 underworld, maybe that would have positive change in a lot of these things, too. But I think the more stories we hear from the ground and what you see and the humanity amongst the Afghani people, amongst the the Iraqi people that are being terrorized by the minority, the same way as we're having issues here with race and other things by the minority, I think it's a very important picture for anyone who hasn't put that uniform on and stood in a foreign land for us to hear, because otherwise we're just going to hear these squeaky wheels that occupy all of our televisions at the moment. Uh, absolutely. The human stories are awesome. And obviously there's, there's plenty of stories out there of, you know, uh, people in the military or, or outside in the UN, you know, helping to establish these other pathways outside the insurgent groups. And, you know, uh, it's, yeah, we're on the sidelines now and it's, you know, those conflicts are still going strong. So uh, it's kind of crazy that our whole generation has, you know, kind of been through it. And, you know, uh, obviously currently we're, we're, we're backing out of some of these locations. So it's just, um, being on the sidelines now, uh, but still, you know, kind of having a lot of friends that are involved in it. It's, it's interesting to see how it's all developing. Yeah. Well, obviously you're going to end up in a very proactive place helping members of the military and first responders that we'll get to now. What were, we'll start with you, Alex, again. What was your decision to transition out? And, and I think it's important as well that people hear about that. This seems to be an area that a lot of people struggle with in the military and first responders, whether they choose to leave, whether it's an injury, whatever it is that, that sends them out. Um, what was that transition experience like for you personally? Yeah, and, and the military transition is, uh, is a critical issue, and I don't think it's one that's ever going to go away. It's to some degree timeless with the, with the structure we have where most of our military uh, does only do a couple tours and then transfers back to the civilian world. Um, for me personally, it, it really had to do with a couple things, two main factors. One, um, what we got to do at Riverine was very unique, uh, incredibly unique. I was an O2, a Lieutenant JG. Uh, the officer above me was an O3, a Lieutenant, and that was it. We were in Ramadi with us and 48 guys. And the freedom we had to plan our own missions, to run our own missions, to coordinate with adjacent units was essentially absolute. Uh, we would sit down, dream up a, a list of, of potential missions, read intel reports, reach out to whatever. Hey, Navy SEALs, you want to do this one? Nope. Hey, Army guys, you want to do this one? All right, let's do it. Come ride our boats. Let's go get these bad guys. Um, it was an incredible command to be at as a junior officer. And realizing coming back from that, that the next commands that would be in front of us would be shore duties, desk jobs, staff jobs, that really leading men in combat, uh, the chance to get to do that again 
was really far in the future, if at all, for where we were in the Navy, right? Because that community was, when the Iraq war ended, the relevancy of the Navy Riverine community to some degree ended as well. And it, it, it's evidence today, it's been disbanded. It doesn't exist again. So maybe at some point in the future, Mike and I will be the old guys showing up, telling our war stories and trying to help the young guys figure out how to make their way on a river. Um, but that was one part of it was, uh, we were, it was never going to be as good again. Like that, there was never going to be that good of a military experience. And so it, it just realizing, Hey, when you, you know, leave at the peak of your game, when you're having fun, don't go keep chasing that. That was part of it. Um, the other part was this very deep sense of feeling that there was other chapters to write in life, right? Like that was it. Did two tours, served my time in the military. And there was now other things I wanted to go do in the world. Uh, and, and that was part of it. That was how my dad served. And that was how his dad served. Um, and there is, I mean, if you, there's plenty of books on generational service in the military, and there's a lot of folks where they'll do full careers, the grandpa, the father, the son, the grandson, they're all doing these full careers in the military. And there's other military families that are more like mine, where they all do this sort of, you know, four years or five years and out type thing. So that was, that was really the motivation is I just had other things to do. Um, the other big piece of that was the current time frame we were in, and it's easy for how these people sort of forget this stuff, but those mid 2000s were a really ugly time to be in the military. The op tempo was very high. Uh, my friends in the Marine Corps were seven months on, seven months off, seven months on. It was a really tough time. And there was a really big, real mindset. And this is a bunch of 25 year old men and women who typically think they're invisible, invincible. And yet there was this just genuine mindset of, I don't know if I'm coming back from this one. Very fatalistic um, way of viewing the world that you typically don't see in people mid twenties. And uh, I wanted to also, I wanted to get married and have kids, right? And I just didn't want to bring that dynamic into an overseas multiple combat tours type experience. And so it just seemed like, hey, you did this. It's time to go let some other 21-year-old be a fire breather and kick indoors. And now at the wise old age of 25, <laughs> uh, it's time to get out and, and get married and have kids. So that was a lot of it. Um, to the transition itself question, trans that transition is tough no matter what. Um, it's a big part of our mission at Beaver Fit now, which we can talk about when we talk later more about like our current state, but in helping service members make that transition, even if it's not to us, right? When we're interviewing folks, even if they don't end up coming to Beaver Fit, it's just being that sort of reassuring, steady hand, like, hey, look, this will work. You will get through this. There's a lot of places to land with good people that understand where you're coming from. Um, I think the best story that illustrates how difficult the transition can be um, was when I was interviewing for one of the first jobs I got outside the military. And it's always tough. The first thing military guys struggle with is how do I translate my resume, right? And so you think, well, maybe I should be a, a police officer. I should go into security. Or I should do something with firearms because that's what I just did. Um, and for some people, they love it and they do. And that's a great transition. But uh, there's that struggle. How do I make my experience relevant to this commercial world? Um, and so I remember I was in this interview and, you know, the, the, the woman interviewing me was taking me down normal questions and I'm, I'm answering them. And she says, okay, well, tell me about your leadership experience. Um, and I said, oh, awesome. This is an easy one. I got lots of this. And so I gave her an example and she goes, oh, no, 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 no. She goes, that's military. That's not real leadership. I need to hear an experience of real leadership. And I was stunned at that statement. And, uh, and frankly, super angry, right? Just inside, just like, this is a Stanford graduate, San Francisco company, you know, just very removed from the world I had just been in. And uh, her explanation, I said, what do you mean by that? Just, can you clarify that? 
her explanation was, well, in the military, people have to do whatever you say, no matter what. And that's not leadership. In the civilian world, that's not true. And what anybody who's been in the military knows is that's not true. <laughs> if you're the type of guy, and I'm sure it's true in first responders, if you're the type of leader that just thinks you tell people what to do and they do it, uh, you're not going to last long as a leader. Um, and it is. It's leadership by example, and it's leadership from the front, and it's servant leadership. And each of those different terms we could unpack for a while. Um, but the bottom line is it's you have to be authentic and genuine. Uh, there is uh, standing in front of a group of, of 12 guys, briefing them on the mission that we're going to do the next day, and we're going to go raid a house looking for you know, a potential insurgent that intel reports say could be there, and you know it's going to be dangerous. If there's anything in you that isn't as fully committed to that as they are, they're going to see right through you, right? That's, that is leadership, uh, is being willing to, to go first and, and do everything, crawl through the mud with your guys. Um, so that was that example of that type of question. It, what it highlighted to me was the incredible cognitive gap between the civilian, war, civilian world and the experience I had just had and how truly difficult it was going to be to even be myself, to openly share, oh, these are my experiences um, that I had in the military. One, one last super quick anecdote. Uh, I'd gotten picked up from the airport by a member of that team, an executive assistant who was driving me into the office uh, for the interview. And I'd had my day pack, right? Like every guy, like you carry all your old gear with you for a long time. And I'm finally not using military gear anymore. But uh, for the first few years, that was all my stuff. And, and you still, I mean, you, it takes a long time to get out of that mentality um, of, of just, I'm um, a warfighter. This is what I do. And so I had my day pack on it, still had my name and my blood type and all that critical information on it. And this girl, she turned to me and she's like, Hey, you think it's probably time to stop carrying that thing around? And it wasn't like, I didn't feel ready to let go of that. It was, it's almost like your security blanket in a way. But, um, that was also interesting to me too, was just the perception that people had of you was so off from who you really were and what you really did. And, and that remains to today. Right uh, at BeaverFit, we have surrounded ourselves with with fellow veterans for a lot of reasons. Primarily because you know the best people that serve in the military make the best team members. Right, that is our secret competitive advantage. Um, and it, when we step outside of that comfort zone, there's still so much you know misunderstanding and misperception of what it means to have served in the military um, that still makes you uncomfortable. So it's the transition's ongoing. It really is. There, there's not a moment that you can say, "Oh, I'm good. I've made it in the civilian world." Um, so yeah, that, that, that's been my experience with it. Beautiful. That's, a, that's some great stories woven into that. Thank you. So Mike, same thing with you. Yeah, I think Alex touched on a couple of the key ones. And you know, one of them being that we truly had the best job in the Navy. Like we were literally spoiled uh, with uh, the amount of resources we had and the responsibility that was placed on our shoulders as a junior officer. And in the community that we were in, um, that opportunity wasn't in our future again. Uh, we would have had to go back and be department heads or executive officers on large ships and not had the level of responsibility uh, to, to lead, you know, young men in combat like we did with, with those sorts of resources. So uh, it was going to be hard to find that again. So we, like Alex said, we figured we'd go out on top. Um, and, and then the other thing, and, and as, you know, getting older now and realizing um, that, that we both have families at home. Uh, and what it was like for um, our team members at that time that deployed and left families at home. Um, 
you know, it, it's crazy. I don't think that, you know, when I was that young officer, I didn't have the amount of respect for um, the, the senior officers or um, other folks that were, that had, you know, wives and kids at home and, you know, the sacrifice that those family members made. Um, and that went into the decision to get out. You know, it was time like, Hey, um, I think Alex and I were actually both engaged to be married when we were deployed to Iraq. Uh, we didn't have, you know, kids or anything like that at home. And then my, my second deployment much later in my career as a reservist, um, I did have a, uh, a, a kid at home, I had a two-year-old boy and it's a different experience uh, like that. So, um, you know, as we were transitioning that a lot of it went into one, Hey, I just had the best job ever. That's never going to happen again. And two, uh, like Alex said, I'm ready to you know, go to the next phase of my life and have a wife and kids and, you know, don't really want to leave them behind, you know, on their own um, through deployments, even though that happened to me anyways, so that's a different story. Um, and then the transition, you know, I'll be honest, like I was quite spoiled. Uh, and I think this is a, a something that's really important to help people uh, and they transition. I had a great support system, you know, my wife and my, my parents and my sister and everyone like that. Uh, and then I had a group of friends, you know, at the Naval Academy and the unit I was serving with. Uh, and I also went to uh, grad school at night. So it was like I was still in the military, but I was dipping my toe into uh, the civilian sector and learning about it. Um, so I, I had more of like a systematic approach, but the, the big thing is that support system. And I think that as veterans are, are transitioning, um, they need to focus on that support system and it can come in a number of different ways. It can come, you know, reaching out to people that have already transitioned, uh, your family and communicating with them about, you know, your decision-making process and, and, and pulling from, from their experiences or maybe friends that are already in the civilian sector. Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions and admit that you don't know um, what you want to do with your life. Uh, and I think that the military is getting much better about that. We at BeaverFit um, are supporting a lot of those, but they have this program called the, the SkillBridge Internships, uh, where when you're still getting paid by the military in your last few months of service, you can actually go and do an internship with a company um, and learn about um, the civilian sector and what you want to do when you grow up, for lack of better words. So, um, I think that we're getting better at it, but I would, you know, my only recommendation is, um, you know, I hate the word networking. It really pains me to say it. So I'm not saying uh, go out there and network, but focus on your support system, uh, surround yourself with people that have been through it. So you can lean on them and ask questions. Um, and, and don't, uh, don't feel like you have to get it right, right away. Um, it's okay to make mistakes and learn and admit those mistakes and, and adjust fire or adjust your course uh, based on what you learned uh, in the transition. And that's, you know, kind of what worked for me as I was, uh, you know, coming out of the military and, and jumping into the civilian sector. I, I actually want to emphasize something Mike just said there, which is to be patient, right? Like be patient with it. Like it's okay if you have a false start or two, your time in the civilian world, it's a big long runway to figure out what you want to do. Uh, and what's going to be the right fit. So definitely be patient. And also to remember that you are not the only person going through this. You have lots of brothers and sisters who have worn the uniform, who've gone through this. And trust me, they're out there in the civilian world that they will help you through it. And, and that's where it is, whether it's networking or just understanding who you can reach out to. Um, but this is, it's for as unique it is for each person going through it, it's not unique. Like we've all been there and there is light on the other side of it. And so it's just uh, be patient and know that like this transition, you will get through it and you will find solid ground on the other side. And on that other side are, are other people who have gone through the same thing. And you will find you are light years ahead of folks who have never put a uniform on. And that's just bottom line uh, in terms of loyalty, teamwork, dedication, 
just discipline and attention to detail and focus and, and mission orientation, all these things that are so ingrained if you wear the uniform, you don't even think about it. You have to pause to actually call those things out and realize they're part of your character now. Um, they are in short supply in the civilian world. There is not a crucible that forms people in that. So when you have a 21-year-old that goes straight to some private sector job, and then at 27, they may be you know, X in a promotion level, um, and you may have to start behind them when you get out, you're going to run past them so fast it's not even funny because those life experiences you have are irreplaceable, and most people don't have them. Well, something that popped in my head as well that uh, I've talked about a little bit on here is using retirees, using their knowledge. I mean, you have in our profession 20, 30 years of experience that walks out of a fire station or a police station one day, and that's it. So did you ever get a sense of some of those world, uh, those, excuse me, those Vietnam vets that you brought in as consultants connecting with you guys again, kind of seeing that healing or that tribalism? Um, as a positive thing within those veterans themselves? The, when you say tribalism, actually, that, that is a great phrase to use. And it reminds me of, of a book by Sebastian Younger, right, called Tribe, which you've probably read. And, and if anyone hasn't read it, you should read that book. Um, it is incredibly insightful on this issue and many others. Yes, exactly. That's his, that's his second one. It's, <laughs> coming, it's yeah, coming out yeah, in about two yeah, weeks. There you so, go. Yeah, he, uh, he gets it. He gets it. And um, in specifics, no. I mean, none of the folks that we specifically trained with did, did we necessarily build those relationships. I, I personally did. Maybe some of our guys did. Um, it, there really wasn't actually, I did not end up having a mentor to help me through the transition. We just sort of like, you know, bulldogged through it on our own. But I think what you highlight is, is a critically important thing is it's the reach back. It's, it's that, hey, once you're out and established, you owe it to the folks coming behind you to help them make that same transition. And there has to be that focus and that sense of responsibility. Um, one, personally, it's, it's a self-interested one. Uh, again, military team members, former military, they make the best team members. That's just a reality. And I feel very comfortable saying that. Um, flip side is, look, we all serve with dirt bags in our units. Everyone knows that just because you put a uniform on doesn't mean you're squared away. So you have to sort through that and find the right people. But um, that's one part of it, but I think it is, there's a, there's a responsibility. You can't just take care of yourself and then be good to go. And that's been interesting for us because when you get out as a 25 year old, uh, or anywhere along the lines and, and you sort of still think of that, of yourself that way in your mind. Um, but then you look back and you look at all these young guys and young girls wearing the uniform today and going through an incredibly similar experience to what we went through. And when you look at culture as a whole, that's not that common, right? Like a 45-year-old and a 25-year-old really don't have similar experiences today. They're in different generations. They grew up differently. The world looks different to each of them from their perspectives. Um, but when we have that commonality of experience of being in the military, it's incredible. It could be an 85-year-old today, and it could be someone who's just getting out, yet their experience is more similar uh, than that 25-year-old's to his peers or to her peers. Um, so there's that responsibility that it's, it's a full life cycle. And the, for the veterans that are out there in the business world, they need to take that responsibility on because one of our realizations was, is who, who is going to take care of us except for ourselves, right? Let's stop looking around and saying, someone should do something for the veterans. We should do something for the veterans. Who, who knows better how to do that than us? Uh, and and, and it's, that's essentially what we've been trying to do in both personally and professionally. And it's, I don't think there's really much more important than that, quite honestly. 
Beautiful. No, I agree 100%. And I think that's a great way of putting it. I think in, you know, our, our professions, we have exactly the same responsibility too, to, after we retire to, to help the transition and also those in the profession, making sure those who are retired are okay. Because from a mental health standpoint, I think that transition is very hard for someone that's seen death and destruction for 20, 30 years in their community. And then one day, they're they're just off the books now. Not not even classified on any of the, of the statistics as a firefighter, or as a police officer, as they, you know, end up whichever way they end up. Well, I want to make sure that we visit the story of Beaver Fit. I know it's a fellow Brit where it all started. Um, so tell me about the genesis of that, and then kind of both your journey through TRX and into the, uh, forming that company over on the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah, you referenced TRX. So that's a good place to start. Um, that's where Mike and I both landed post-military service and what our focus there. And so for those who don't know, TRX is sort of that uh, yellow and black strap. You've probably seen it everywhere, the suspension training. Um, our jobs there were to help get that product into the military. And so that's where we learned uh, how to, as a vendor, go back and, and introduce capabilities and help to sell those back into the military. And that was our focus. As a part of that, um, we spent time overseas uh, in the UK trying to do the same thing with the MOD, the Ministry of Defense over there. And that's where we met Tom, uh, Tom Beaver. And at the time, he had just come up with this concept for a container gym, right? Uh, essentially, a shipping container that had squat racks affixed to the outside and then customized storage on the inside to hold all of the weight equipment and all the racks. And Anyone who's been in the military and served overseas, or, or I would say, I, and I apologize to any first responders, our experience just happens to be military, but I'm sure a lot of this is, is universal to first responders in that you're at facilities where all of your equipment to do your job is, but maybe there's not fitness equipment. Oh, but guess what? You still have to maintain peak fitness for operational readiness. So good luck with that. Um, that has always been a challenge in the military service. And everyone's seen pictures online of the sort of jerry-rigged fitness things that people make up, you know, a steel bar with sandbags on the end or uh, any number of ways that you find a way to sort of lift and move weight while you're overseas. Um, so when we saw the container gym, it was an instant light bulb of, oh, this is it. This is it. Because again, overseas, you eat in shipping containers, you sleep in shipping containers, you buy DVDs from third country nationals out of shipping containers. Everything is in shipping containers. Uh, and yet there wasn't an expeditionary fitness solution. Um, and so that was really the light bulb of, oh, this, this is the next thing in fitness. And, um, and so that was where, uh, when we saw it, it was just, hey, Tom, like, we, we got to bring this to the U.S. military. And so that was really the genesis of that. Um, about a year after meeting Tom, uh, Mike and I left the company we were at and said, hey, let's do this. Let's start BeaverFit in North America. And then it's just been a rocket ship ride since then. And I'll put it over to you in a sec, Mike, but just as a backstory, so Tom's dad was a bridge builder, is that right? So I'm assuming he had the ironwork kind of connection there. Um, and then he was also SAS Reserve. So Tom had gone through uh, the SAS Reserves up until the point of being commissioned and then did not opt for the commissioning program. And I think you may end up talking to him, so I'll let him tell his story. Um, but yes, so Beaver Bridges, which is what his dad uh, was the second generation on Beaver Bridges, uh, that was their family company. And so Tom grew up welding and fabricating and learning how to you know, do steel structural work as part of the bridge building business. And that was really important to us when we started BeaverFit here in North America, because that was the knowledge, the engineering knowledge. Mike and I are not engineers, right? Uh, I think technically Mike has a bachelor of science because he went to the Naval Academy, but I can tell you, neither of us are math and science people. And uh, that was that was a huge help to have that engineering background, to have that professional steelworking background, 
And it was really important to us. And a lot of that is why when we started the company here in America, it was sort of a no brainer. Like, yeah, it's, it's Beaver Fit because of that heritage with Beaver Bridges uh, and that background. And honestly, in our early years, when it was just the two of us running around trying to make something happen, that really helped. When we would sit down with folks and we would explain, well, we're back, there's this bridge building company and they do the engineering work and they back what we're doing. Um, now we have a full-time team of five to six engineers and all kinds of professional engineering firms that we work with on the outside. But, but at the time, that history was critically important to what we were doing. So, Mike, from your perspective, I want to get to the first responder profession because I can tell you a million reasons why there are so many areas of what you do now will benefit our professions. But, you know, supply and demand, what what were the the needs that you started seeing yourselves being able to meet within the military specifically? Uh, James, for sure. And uh, I'll start off by saying, you know, one thing that we really pride ourselves in BeerFit, whether it was that uh, initial container gym idea, or we had like a footlocker that we call the gym box, is uh, we're not the type of company that's going to sit in a, a conference room and, and whiteboard our, our own ideas out. Um, we want to go out there in the field. We want to be side by side with our customers, whether that be military first responders or CrossFit gyms or commercial gym owners and, and talk about what are their challenges? What are they trying to overcome and how can we come up with uh, solutions to help them overcome those challenges? So, uh, and that container gym is the perfect idea. Like literally like, Hey, how do we get fitness equipment in the expeditionary environment so we can maintain peak readiness anywhere in the globe, no matter where we are. Um, and, and that's continued to happen, you know, even as we've expanded our, expanded our product line at BeaverFit, um, we now do rappel towers, um, we do full-on facility build-outs because people are looking for a little bit more than just a container gym. Um, they want a recovery area. Um, they want more strength conditioning equipment. They want cardio. So now we build, um, we call them beaver domes. We take our containers uh, and we line them up, you know, 60 feet apart and we cover them um, with a tension fabric structure and build out like a, a division one strength and conditioning facility. So um, it's just crazy to see the requirements uh, continue to move around and expand. And uh, even in the first responder space, to be honest, James, we've sat down with those customers and um, sometimes they're, um, uh, they have limited budgets. So we work with them and say, okay, what are some of your other training tasks or in the military, we call them mission essential tasks that we can build out this multifaceted solution. So you can still do your strength and conditioning training, your cardio, but in the first responder space, you can do your uh, forceful entry training or your breaching. Uh, we have an entanglement trainer. Uh, we had ladders, you can do ladder drills. So we really take pride in that requirements-based design, uh, not sitting in our offices, let's get out there in the field, let's train with our customers, let's, let's suffer with them and, and understand what some of their challenges are so we can, at the end of the day, um, design something that can help them win. So through through your lens, um, what have been some of the challenges in the first responder space as a vendor um, that you didn't seem to have the same issues with in the military? It, James, I hit on one of them. One of them is budget, right? You know, it, it's it's a challenge because um, the DOD obviously has massive budgets for training equipment, uh, travel, teeny, all sorts of different stuff. And there's um, pots of money that you can pick from for human performance equipment or tactical training equipment. Um, you know, on the first responder side, a lot of it is, you know, sometimes funded through grants at different organizations uh, or there's multiple approval levels to get something funded. So I would say, uh, funding was a big one. A uh, space is another one. A lot of these locations in the first responders, uh, they don't have space for this sort of equipment. Um, so we were always trying to come up with, uh, like I was saying, unique solutions that were multifaceted. So it helped them justify the budget. And then two, um, 
we're, we're space conscious or uh, we're able to create training space outside of um, the firehouse or the police station so they could uh, accomplish this sort of training. So I would say the two is budget and space uh, were some of the challenges within first responders. I, I would jump on that and add two things. Um, the other piece I think we, we sort of addressed earlier is the sort of Byzantine framework of how it's structured, right? There's no clear, if, if we want to work with the army, you can see the hierarchy from any given you know, company in the field to its battalion, to its brigade, to its division, right? Uh, to its core. I mean, you go all the way up. Uh, and so the military can really act or, you know, from an enterprise level. And that's clearly not the case in first responder, right? Um, local, state, volunteer, non-volunteer. There's so many different aspects of that. But then the other piece uh, is the culture. And that was something we had to sort of come to with humility. There was this mindset of, oh, well, we were in the military, first responders, that's, that's sort of like the military. We'll just, we'll talk to them like they're the military. And that didn't resonate. It, it, it clearly didn't. And we had to learn that humility of, look, our experience, though relevant, is different than the first responder experience. And certainly the military and first responder experience have more in common than the civilian experience, but they're different. And that the, the, the life cycle and the world that first responders live in is uh, in a lot of ways uh, more intense than military. Everyone thinks, oh, the military is so intense. The amount of combat time in a combat tour is a fraction of that time. Um, the, the real mental stress, I think, of a, of a military deployment is precisely that always like waiting for something to happen. Just that piece of garbage going to explode? Is that piece of garbage going to explode? You know, a nine-hour convoy can age you, age you 30 years just, just worrying about that, even when nothing happens. It's almost easier when things go kinetic. Um, but the, for first responders, I feel like that's, that's every day and it's nonstop and you almost live on a deployment. And so that, that was another big uh, thing that we're still frankly learning is the how to truly communicate with that community because we're a very military centric company and that's our worldview. Uh, and so we've had to sort of try to learn some humility and figure out how to speak to the first responders as if we were a first responder, not as if we were the military. And James, one quick example that I think is really interesting and, and highlights some of the differences is um, in the Army. They've come out with a new fitness test, the Army Combat Fitness Test. And previous to this test, it was just uh, push-ups, sit-ups, and a run. And now they have to do a deadlift, they have to do a med ball throw, they have to do a thing called a leg tuck, which is basically elbows to knee. Uh, and they have to do a shuttle run with a sled. Every single person in the Army has to do that. Everyone knows the standard. Uh, first responders, um, and that comes to the top down. Uh, first responders, um, every single uh, first responder unit has their own test and their own standard to meet to. So it's hard to understand, um, you know, what those different requirements are uh, when we're talking to the various units, because um, uh, I don't mean to say this in a negative way, but sometimes the standards are all over the place. And, and the intent of that unit um, it can be very much different than the one down the road. Uh, whereas in the military, we know what the standards are and it's easy to uh, you know, identify uh, what some of the gaps are in meeting that standard and provide solutions uh, to help them get across the uh, finish line and meet those standards. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. And one of the, the frustrations I have is the best departments have a high-level entry test. They have annual tests. Some might even be punitive at the, at the absolute pinnacle, but a lot of them don't. And it's it's funny, I just had a couple of lifeguards on recently and, you know, I used to be a lifeguard back in the day and, of course, we had annual tests. If you can't swim, you're not going to be a lifeguard if you can't make the toes, make the rescues. But sadly, in first responder professions, a lot of us have one to get hired and that's it. You may have some sort of kind of 
almost like facade of a fitness test, but it's non-punitive. It doesn't mean anything really other than if you take your job seriously, then you compete against your friends that actually also take it seriously. But um, you have this complete spectrum of ownership and leadership in the in the performance space. Um, so therefore, you have a spectrum of the amount of priority given to strength and conditioning in certain departments. Um, one thing that I think is completely understandable, though, is a lot of these departments have trailers, have very old fire stations or, you know, the middle of a busy city, wherever it is. And space absolutely is an issue. And it's something that, you know, I've kind of conceded as a as a reason to be a barrier as somewhat for some uh, crews when it comes to strength and conditioning. What I love about what you guys have are solutions to that. If you have a couple of parking spaces in the back, if you have a wall that can have things anchored into it, there are some great options. So just kind of painting the picture, uh, let's say a suburban department built a certain way is not going to have any expansion, but has a decent amount of land in the back, some, you know, some concrete slabs and parking areas. What are some of the solutions you bring to these departments when space is a challenge? Yeah, James, I think you nailed a couple of points is all we need is a couple of parking spots and we can turn that into um, a, a functional training space that you can, uh, you know, do, perform the strength conditioning program to make sure you're ready to do your job. So we have, uh, whether it's a, a single container uh, or you take two containers and you put a shelter between them. Um, and then one of our newest products that we're coming out with um, is a trailer-based product. And I think the advantage of that is, is now maybe you have a couple of those um, at your schoolhouse, your headquarters unit. Um, and, and if you have um, some peer fitness leaders within the first responder unit, uh, they can drive that around to some of the outlying posts and conduct workouts um, you know, with that similar equipment uh, so that there's the same standard at those different posts. So um, we just have a multitude of solutions. And then the other one I think has been more popular with the first responders is uh, we call it a gym box. It basically a two foot by four foot box. that looks like a, a foot locker that would be at the end of your rack that you store equipment in, or you can attach a squat rack to that and have all your equipment on the inside. Um, and the great thing about that, it's good for flexible use spaces. So if you have um, someplace that is a, a meeting room or a storage area for a vehicle, um, okay, cool. I have this push off the side against the wall, pull that vehicle out, and then you could quickly set it up and run your workout. Uh, so now that you know, maintenance space that you use to maintain your vehicles can quickly be converted into a workout space for a couple hours a day. Um, and, and people can come in and train and then it could be quickly packed up and, and pushed off to the sides and your vehicles can get back in there. So um, I would say that you know, between that gym box and then uh, being able to convert a couple uh, outdoor parking spots into a training space or a mobile trailer, um, we've got a number of solutions that are, are pretty unique and can help um, the, the first responder units get after their physical mission. Yeah, no, and I've seen, I saw the, the YouTube video of the gym box and it's amazing because you end up having, is it four pull-up bars on that too? Have I got that right? Yeah, if you do the dual racks, you can put them back to back and then, yeah, you'll have four pull-up bars, two squat racks and, you know, you have storage for your equipment. And the great thing is, is like, uh, and the same thing with our container gyms is the boxes themselves act as the anchor for the racks. Uh, so we've all done pull-ups or squats on freestanding racks or you always have to bolt them into the ground. Uh, I think the unique thing about um, those couple products is um, it, the box is the anchor. So you have an incredibly stable, you know, training platform uh, to, to squat or do bench press off or do your or pull-ups or your, you know, suspension training type of movements. Absolutely. Well, I mentioned as well, you know, there's all these, you know, different um, equipment suppliers. 
some I've seen very obviously don't really align in any way, shape or form to our professions. Um, some, you know, some do. There are some that, in all honesty, are low bid, low quality. And so I've seen people fight and fight and fight for a budget finally for a wellness initiative only to have half the equipment broken a year later and then a bunch of a told you so's after that. Um, so the, you know, the equipment itself is also very important. So tell me about gray man gear. Well, if I could jump in, I think what you nailed in that question is that when you're looking in the, so look, the military is going through this exact issue right now, this sort of paradigm shift is there has been a commercial fitness industry in America, in this country that serves commercial and consumer fitness needs, right? It's designed for those box retail gyms. It's designed for the home or garage gym user. The big names you referenced off, leader in consumer equipment, leader in uh, division one sort of SNC strength rooms, right? Those are their target markets. That's who they're catering to. Um, that is not the first responder community. It's not the military. And that's been the big realization of the last eight years of building beer fit here in the States is that's who we are is we're catering to those environments. We're not catering to box commercial. We're not catering to the home user. It's not that our equipment doesn't have applicability there, but that's not our starting point. It's not our focus. Our focus is Mike talked about requirements-based design. It's looking at what does the usage pattern look like for service members? And so what does that like specifically, what does that mean? Well, training outdoors, right? That's a big part of it. First responders, your space limited, well, train outside. Uh, in the military, you train outside anyway. You're in an expeditionary environment. That's where you're going to go. Uh, the other issues is use, usage patterns. You put a kettlebell or a medicine ball in somebody's garage, they're using it for what? A couple hours a day, three to five days a week. Uh, that equipment's going to last a long time. The quality of it doesn't have to be as high for that usage pattern of one person. Fast forward all the way to like the military where you have a company of soldiers falling in on a piece of equipment and using it for an hour. And then an hour later, another company falls in and does the same thing. And then you repeat that all week. Um, they can destroy equipment in a heartbeat that could take even a year in a high-use commercial gym uh, to wear out. And so as opposed to doing what you said is having people fall on the sword of, oh, whoops, I, I just you know really wanted this really great equipment. And now I got really cheap stuff because maybe there's a bid process that's the lowest priced. And so I just got junk out of, out of the market. Um, or even when you go and buy the high-end equipment from say the best brand for a D1 strength room, but you, but you need to put it outside and then it rusts in a year right? Like it's not designed for what your usage is. And so that's really what has driven both the large sort of infrastructure beaver fit equipment, but then gray man gear, that's our accessory line. Accessory line. So everything that we put into a locker, so a container gym, uh, med balls, barbells, kettlebells, jump ropes, all of those types of items that would make up a functional strength training gym. Um, over time, we have developed our own line of those specifically catering it for outdoor use and specifically only making it here in the States. And so that's what Gray Man Gear is. It's equipment that is requirement-based designed specifically for outdoor use, for tactical users, so first responders and the military, and it's all sourced here in the States. And it's, so again, what does that mean? Hey, you say it's, it's designed for outdoor use, but how is it? So take the med ball. Med balls for a long time, they're just leather, right? You're slamming leather on the ground, you're leaving leather out in the sun, your seams are going to burst. It's going to get destroyed. I mean, the sun destroys everything, but it's really going to rip through that. Somebody did a Kevlar med ball. Sounds great. Kevlar markets well, um, but it's, it's still, the seams will still burst, uh, if anything. And sometimes it was worse than the leather because the type of pressure the Kevlar would put as it resized in the sun and getting wet and getting dry uh, could burst the seams faster. So 
what do we do? We have, and, and Mike, you could speak to this probably in more depth, but we use a, a, a rubber type of med ball from a supplier in the industry that up until this point was making marine buoys, right? So they're creating buoys in a maritime environment that are designed to handle. I mean, there is no more corrosive, worse environment than, than a buoy's in. It's in salt water and it's in the sunshine, right? Or it could be fresh water, but, um, but they had to come up with technology to protect that equipment so we use that technology specifically in our gray man gear med balls. There's UV additives in the rubber that help prevent uh, the breakdown from sunshine, right? That's just one example of the type of very detailed product focus that goes into this accessory line because it's designed first for the tactical first responder and not for the commercial gym. So we always use that round peg square hole analogy. If you're a tactical person and you're looking to the commercial fitness industry for equipment, you're going to get a round peg. They're going to try to should say this carefully, they're going to try to put into a square <laughs> hole. Uh, um, and that's, th- that's not what we're doing. We are, we are creating our equipment to fit into the need first. Hey, then if it has applicability to the commercial user, great, let's go apply it there. But our starting point is always the folks that put on the uniform and what do they need from an equipment perspective. Beautiful. Well, the other thing just on the inventory that you've got, I know that you ended up supplying a lot for the army um, physical test. Um, and there's some great tools even within that. The hex bar, I think, is great for deadlifts, you know, and, and farmers carries and things like that. But you also have the sandbag and you have the sleds and the kettlebells. Even the kettlebells, I got big monkey hands. So the design of your handle, like the regular design, my, my pinky knuckle can never fit in. I have to have it on the outside. So just seeing the tools that you have again shows that with that being the focus, I think sleds and sandbags are amazing for fire specifically police as well but i mean for us we push pull we drag we carry so those are all tools that are pertinent to our professions as well uh, it's, it, james i think you nailed it and i would say that you know on top of what alex said that uh you know our team and the team that we build here is all in we always tell people that uh excuse my french on this one but we have a high give a fuck factor so we're not in it for the single transaction with our customers. Uh, we're in it with them for the long haul. And we're going to listen to those ideas. Like I said, a lot of these products and even that kettlebell and the design to it, we didn't sit by ourselves and come up with that. That's getting out there in the field saying, hey, what are some of the challenges with the product on the market? Oh, wow, I leave my med ball outside and it fails. Or um, I'm doing mobility work on a kettlebell and it has a skinny base on it. Whenever I'm you know, smashing up my calf on it, that kettlebell you know, tips over. Okay, let's get a wider, flatter base on that kettlebell. Um, so those are the type of things that um, the team that, that we have is just deep into that stuff. They want to geek out on it with our customers. And then uh, we are also spoiled that uh, I tell people all the time that uh, our engineers and our fabrication team is just incredible because they can take the craziest caveman paper napkin sketch of an idea, uh, turn it into a photo realistic 3D rendering that you can really envision what that product would be. Uh, and then once we slap the table on it, uh, our fabrication team uh, and some of our other suppliers just have the ability to make that stuff come to life. And I think that, that's different. You know, we're, we're trying to remain agile to that. And as companies get bigger, sometimes that, that innovation or, or, or that work side by side with the customers to design something specific to their needs gets harder and harder. And I'll be honest, as we grow, that is getting harder, but it's something that is at our core um, that, that we're going to continue to do is make sure that um, we're side by side with our customers, have that high give a fuck factor to design uh, solutions that are going to help them meet their mission and win. Well, another area that really struck me was you mentioned the um, the entanglement maze, the uh, the breaching prop. 
One of my pet peeves is we go and do what in the real world will be a very high stress environment. Maybe we've climbed 10 flights of stairs before. Maybe we've had to hump a load of equipment, you know, two, 300 meters to get to wherever we're going. But in the training setting, we're under an easy up. We're, we're waiting until our turn comes and we go and do whatever the skill is. And then we high five each other and then go get some Gatorade. I love the fact that you have the combination of the strength and conditioning equipment with some of these props. So you're able to create a level of stress, whether it's physical first and get the heart rate up and then perform those skills, you know, under duress. So, so tell me about that combination and some of the applications you've seen in, in, in the first responder professions. Yeah, James, I, you obviously are uh, right on, on, on board with kind of our mission and intent. And that's why we came up with the tactical line is exactly what you said. Hey, you know, we're, we're sitting there and we're breaching a door and you're just standing in line behind somebody, then going to hit it when the operational your environment, you're in, in a high heart rate environment um, before you do that. So um, uh, that entanglement trainer, we call it actually the firefighter safety and survival locker. Um, it has a squat rack and a rope climb tower and the inside has all your kettlebells so that you can get in that high heart, high, high heart rate, high stress environment before you go and perform uh, those tactical applications. And it's amazing seeing the difference of somebody that's, you know, pretty smoked out under a lot of stress, uh, trying to get through that entanglement trainer with all their gear on compared to just, you know, walking up, you know, and standing in line for a while before you do it. So it's, uh, we we're passionate behind it. We think it's incredibly important, that combination. Uh, and it's probably a, a phrase that's overused these days, but you have to train like you fight. And, you know, we know that's what happens in an operational environment. So what can we do to best simulate that in a training environment? And that's where we get the combination behind um, the human performance and the tactical side of EverFit. And to, to echo that, what you put your finger on, James, is the, the normal way that people split is they split your human performance training, so how you're training your body, from, say, your sports-specific skill training, right, or your tactical-specific skill training. So you may train in the gym to get your body ready, but then you're going to go out and train you know, a different day on a training apparatus, but that's not how it works in real life as you pointed to. And so that's the hybridization of sports specific or mission specific skills combined with human performance all wrapped into one device. And you reference, I mean, I think of like the Mandalay Bay situation and how the first responders, they had to climb however many flights of stairs so they could get up there. Right. Um, one, you're climbing stairs, so you're going to be smoked, but two, you're climbing stairs under heavy load while adrenaline is pumping, which is going to just, you know, drain you that much more. How can you replicate that, right? That's, that's been the challenge is how do we bring those two things together? And it's part of a, a motto that we use at the company for some of our products, which is prepare, train, execute. And that's not just some the fancy marketing term. Trust me, the, the one thing we're not great at is fancy marketing. <laughs> um, Don't but, worry, I'm uh, not either. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're, we're doing better uh, for sure. We're doing better there. But our, um, when you think of that prepare and execute, it's really it's prepare the body, right? Train for the actual mission in front of you, and then you go execute. And so we're always trying to hybridize and bring together that prepare and train because that's where it all needs to happen at the same time. I mean, the, the, the isolated gym, that's where you get the movement right, right? Like that's how you learn how to move and how to get strong. But, and you do need to do that isolated because what you don't want to do is load up the wrong movement in a dynamic environment. And that's how you lead to injury. So there's a time and a place to separate those. But when it comes to really being a, a, an experienced sort of high level performance team, you got to start bringing those things together in your training. And that's, that's a lot of what our equipment seeks to do. Yeah, well, I think the other thing that, again, you know, just seeing the application and the reason we're having this conversation is because I agree with them with 
you know, your philosophy and, and, and you have this high level military background and you have Tom's high level engineering background, his high level, you know, operator, um, history as well, but it's just application. So for me, say you're doing a collapse or, you know, a, an entanglement scenario and you're able to use the sled. Okay. This is the push is now going to simulate advancing the hose line. All right. You've made it here. Now we're on the step. We're going to, you know, climb X amount of stairs. Now maybe we'll do some sort of breaching prop or something. Who knows? And then, you know, now we're going to do a drag. We're pulling someone out. And then now there's a collapse. So now by the time you get to that collapse maze, you're already at a ste- you know, steady rate of fatigue or the, the breaching prop. Rather than fighting your way in, maybe you're fighting your way out. Maybe you, you know, the Mandalay Bay scenario, the guy's still alive and he's, you know, coming at, at you with some sort of weapon, you know. So creating those scenarios, I think, can paint a picture for responders and take away the fear of training. Because what I see with the more, um, Let's let's take CrossFit, and I I love CrossFit. I I coach at a, a gym here, but let's say it's the snatch, it's the the Turkish get up, it's some of these things where a lot of my peers are scared of looking stupid doing, scared of showing people, hey, I'm not as strong as you thought I was, I'm not as fit, which no one cares. The point is that you're showing up and you're training, but with the sleds, with the sandbags, with the kettlebell carries, you're able to get people to simulate what we would in a real world scenario you don't have to pull a bunch of stuff off a fire engine and then we get a call and now we have to load it all back up before we can go and pull someone out of a burning building um and it's so you know the the combination of the kind of strongman tactical athlete training with some skill scenarios where we have to have that kind of acute motor control i think is a really really good way of training under duress without needing an entire you know drill tower or all the gear off the fire engine, for example. Yeah, a lot of times we, we can keep it simple and, and show uh, you know the, the team members that we're training with the why behind it. And I, I think you nailed that sort of stuff. Like, hey, you know, why do we do some of those movements that are, are popular at CrossFit? And uh, I think if, if we can do that side by side, you, you see that connection and people understand uh, the why behind they need to train that way, um, so that. And we talked about a little bit, but yeah, we, we want to be operational ready and perform our jobs, but also um, injury prevention is a huge one, uh, whether we talk uh, military or first responders. And if we know that we're going to have to do those movements operationally, uh, let's train to them in the, uh, in the training environment. And so we can simulate them uh, to, pro- to try to prevent injuries and you know, maintain our force, uh, whether it's the first responder force or the military force uh, for longevity so we can have you know, better, healthier career. Um, you know, as we continue to operate in our older age, I think we're all you know, similar age here on this call and we're experiencing that. And we know that that sort of stuff is so important these days um, uh, t- to pay attention to uh, the loads that are going to be in our body and make sure that we're prepared to handle those. Yeah. Well, just one more thing before we kind of go to where people listening can find out more and, you know, maybe even try and get you guys to, to come to their facility. Um, one of the big problems that we suffer from, I don't think it's just in the fire service, sadly, I think it's in, in the country as well, but is that um, short-sighted mentality, the the false economy, where for that budget year, well, this set of equipment was cheaper, you know, but then you look over five, 10 years, it was a complete waste of money. Um, what as far as what do you have as far as longevity and guarantees of people that want to invest, you know, looking at a price tag is more than, say, you know, the Sears weight set that they saw. Um, 
so that they can see that longer picture that's going to be a much better investment for them at a station at a you know a police facility over x amount of years i mean it's always a trade-off right i mean you hear the the overset saying you can have something fast you can have it cheap or you can have it right but you can't have all three or you can only have one of them i like to think we do two of those right we make it the highest quality and we actually can do it pretty quickly um our operations team cringes when they hear that but um but but in reality, like you're going to get what you pay for from an equipment perspective. And I think that there's even more of an awareness now, though, of it's, it's not even just the equipment. It's not about the spec of that equipment. It's about the company that backs the equipment. What type of commitment are they making to you? Are they just a company where the, the leaders there hide behind the facade of it being a corporation and they do the bare minimum and you're just a transaction to them? That's We're all used to that environment, but that's not today. And I think people both consumers at every level, institutionally. I think government buyers should be thinking this way, just like home buyers do, is who's the company that I'm participating with? Are these people part of my team? Are they genuinely invested? Like if I'm a fire department and I just begged, bought, stole, borrowed, whatever it was to get this grant that I just got, how do we avoid that scenario where then you just got a bunch of cheap equipment, everybody goes, yep, see, told you so, you wasted your time. That's, that's what you have to seek out. It isn't just, oh, this kettlebell is better than that kettlebell right? Like it's, it's so much more than that because when you have a genuine commitment from the other team on the other side of the table, that's where our team members are showing up. Something breaks, something is not what a customer intended. We put somebody on an airplane and we get them out there to fix it, right? Like we make it right because it all boils down to like a sort of another internal mantra that we have, which is, hey, you've got to do the right things for the right reasons. And the transactional arm's length sort of, oh, you bought my product and my warranty says this, so you're out of luck man, screw that and screw those people. Like, quite honestly, that's not an honest way of doing business or engaging. And it shows that you don't really care. And as maybe as, you know, sort of Dilbert-esque or silly or naive as that sounds, um, I disagree. We've tried to run our company on these principles all along. And what you see is it motivates the hell out of your own team and it motivates your customers. And it's a genuine support where we have guys wanting to get on airplanes and go support customers when it's got nothing to do with a sale. There's nothing in it for us except that the customer is going to benefit. That's what's in it for us, genuinely. I mean, we're a for-profit company, clearly, but uh, you have to have that genuine connection to the customer and really want to see them succeed or else it's just a transactional interaction. So th- I think that's what people should be looking at. I mean, there's you could look at product specs and pricing all day long, but are you getting a partner who's going to help you achieve your goals or are you just having a transaction? Yeah, we want to provide value well well beyond the initial purchase and, and continue to maintain that relationship. And, and, and honestly, sometimes, James, um, you know, less equipment is better. We want to focus on the capability that our customer is trying to get out of that set equipment. And there's going to be a lot of times like, hey, no, you actually need to buy less because you're going to get the capability um, to train to, to your mission or what your goals are with less equipment. So let's save that money and spend it on something else uh, for right now. And maybe once you um, expand your mission set or you want to do more things uh, with your uh, human performance program, we can add more equipment. Um, but we try to focus on that capability. And you know, if we really want to get into equipment specs, you know, we can, we have a, uh, a, a, left, a lifetime warranty in our structural steel and welds, um, 10 year warranty, um, you know, on pretty much any of our equipment, but all that kind of stuff, I'll be honest with you. I think it's marketing fluff. Like Alex said, if a customer has an issue, um, 
we are going to go above and beyond uh, to make that issue right for them. And, and there's proof in the pudding of the number of times we've done that from our customers at the, the highest level when we delivered 18,000 hex bars to the U.S. Army and some of them had defects and we immediately replaced all of them to the lowest consumer that has issues um, with a single kettlebell. We'll go above and beyond to fix it. And that's uh, it goes to you know, what Alex said a number of times, um, the, the team and their commitment to being part of that community and continuing to provide value to our customers for the long haul and not just that initial transaction. And, and just to chime in on that, James, it actually goes all the way back to one of the questions you asked us in the beginning. And as it, it, may, uh, it may sound strange to make this connection, but um, when I talked about when you're going into like a hut in Iraq and you see the other, you see the people sort of huddled up on the floor and they're scared of you and you see the humanity there, that's the same concept with your customer is you have to put yourself in their seat. You have to see that humanity. This is not a transactional relationship where we just want people's money. We don't, right? Like you have to see like, what if I was on the other side of that and I'm a personal trainer and I just got a loan to invest in this $30,000, you know, beyond trailer that's going to enable me to go do training all over my area and really open up my business. But that's it. That's my, that's my shot. I shot my shot. Like it needs to work for them. Just getting the purchase order, that's not the end of it. That's the start of the relationship. And then we want to make sure that works for them. Not sure. It's good for us if they succeed. But at the end of that transaction is another person on their journey in life, trying to make their way, trying to build a business to take care of their family. Just like Mike said, that's really what people are trying to do on the other side of the world too. So it's that understanding of the sort of common humanity and what we're going through. And I know that sounds very up in the clouds, but it's, it's incredibly tangible because if you don't have that genuine motivation, then everything we're saying is just words and you're just saying it to try to get a purpose. And that's not the case. So it's, it's, there, there has to be that deep level of commitment uh, from the ownership of a company, from the team members, from the, from everybody who's involved, it has to be genuine uh, or else you're just, you're just making noise. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast because I lost friends. I buried friends. That was, that was the, the foundation of this whole project. And, you know, one of the missions is obviously a, a physical mission. Another one is a mental health mission and all these other, you know, elements that are attached to become the global healthy human being. And I hope that after this last year, the more sensible of us are going to realize there was a huge health message behind that. And, you know, we're going to keep adding to maybe better food and, you know, more exercise and that kind of thing. I'm hoping there's a lot of people listening to this that are very, very interested that see a, a, a company who is veteran founded, um, international as well, because that's important. I mean, I love the fact this is going to be heard for Beaver Fit in the UK as well. Um, that understands the tactical space, understands that in an engine bay, maybe the barbells won't be put in some pristine gym on the inside um, and it's not going to fall apart. So people listening, where are the best places for them to go online to begin the process of finding out how much it would cost to outfit their department? As you said, big or small, whether it's a volunteer looking for a single kettlebell through to maybe a headquarters of a big department looking for a, a proper gym. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're looking for where to find more information on the web, it's there's two places. It's it's BeaverFit, Google BeaverFit, BeaverFitUSA.com or BeaverFit.com is going to take you to either our European site or our North American site. And then GreyManGear.com, that's our accessory line. And those are the two places where there's more information. Um, what those sites do a really good job of is trying to uh, direct people to where they need to go because really what it is is they need to get in touch with our team. 
And so you go on those sites, you look around for the product specs, but really just fill out any of those forms that say, hey, learn more information. And our team will get a hold of that. They'll be very responsive. And it's a very consultative type of relationship there. So they'll get in touch and walk through what works or doesn't work. And, and frankly, come up with creative problem solvings, particularly for government entities uh, on how to fund it. I mean, if you think, well, my fire station will never get funded, don't give up. I mean, this is our team's job. They Their job is to help find grants and align you with funding. It's not just presenting product specs. So there's a lot of support that can be found through the website. And then our team will walk people all the way, start to finish through how to even acquire funding and, and make the acquisition. You have anything to add to that, Mike? No, I think Alex nailed it. And you know, our, our social media channels are getting better and better. Um, so if you go to Be Refit uh, on Instagram and Be Refit USA, and then uh, the last one is you know, obviously a forum that's getting more and more popular, LinkedIn. Now our team is very active on LinkedIn, sharing um, you know recent uh, installations or, or just even stuff from the community about um, you know how to train or you know, whether tactically or with human performance. So uh, I don't want to ignore uh, the Instagram and LinkedIn social media channels that we're always uh, putting out uh, what I think is great content and uh, trying to participate in that community. Yeah, well, just another add, add-on as well. I see there's um, a UK-based um, fitness group, 22 Smoking Aces, that aligns with you guys. There's Reorg, which is a an organization I'm very passionate about, which is the Royal Marines Jiu-Jitsu group, who, again, helps a lot of wounded warrior and people transitioning. And it seems like you guys are aligning with all those as well. So I just want to say thank you so much. I think it's it's amazing what Tom started, what you guys, you know, carry the torch over here, but it's needed. You know, I, there's a huge need for healthier responders, whether it's them being able to perform their job at a higher level, but and just as important, if not more, them going home to their families at the end of the shift. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for kind of educating us all, not only on, you know, the riverines, but obviously the, uh, the, the beaver fit and gray man products. Um, and I'm excited to, to, to hear from you and see if people reach out because I think this is a great solution and a great opportunity to eliminate what were excuses in the past. Lack of equipment, can't put it outside, not enough space. You're bringing solutions to all of these. So thank you both for being so generous with your time today. Uh, James, thank you. You know, what you're doing for the community uh, with Behind the Shield and giving folks a, a platform to, to share stories and experiences, uh, I think it's just incredible. And that's how we can all learn. So uh, just uh, appreciate the platform and, and the ability to, to share with the community. Yeah, thank you, James. Thank you.